Good morning, Mercy House. My name is Frecker, and we'll be reading the Bible today from James 5, from verse 7 to 12. James 5, from verse 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, The judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Could you pray with me? Dear Father, as we gather here this morning, we worship you as our Lord and King. We recognize that there is no one before you, no one who can exalt themselves above you. We confess that we don't act this way all the time. Through our thoughts and by our actions, we sin against you. And so, Lord, at this moment, we ask for forgiveness but we are also assured that we receive your grace and your warm embrace that tells us that we are yours. We thank you for the snowstorm and the safety to drive here to church this morning. We thank you for students who have begun arriving for the new semester. We surrender this service to you that you direct Alden as he preaches that his lips and his heart be guided, and that he speak with the boldness that only you can give him. We ask, Lord, that you teach us patience through your Holy Spirit, that you teach us how to live together as a family, as a church, as a nation, that you teach us how to live with ourselves. I ask, Lord, that as we listen to this message, you give us concentration that our mind may not wander, and that we will have remembrance and we'll be able to act on what we learn afterwards. Heavenly Father, we thank you because we know your, this prayer is answered. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Ooh. 
Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alden. Glad you're here. Glad to be here with you. I'm excited to be preaching with you guys this morning. I know in particular, I want to welcome college students who are back, a lot of whom for the first time. Welcome. I see some fingers half-heartedly raised. That's awesome. That was rude. I'm sorry. I'm glad you guys are here. I really am. <laughs> Oof, good. Anyway, so especially if you're a college student, and this might be your first week at Mercy House, if, you're, if this is your first time here, I want to direct your attention to the welcome cards. They're magnetized to the back of the chair in front of you. We would love to connect with you guys, so if you would fill that out, we would love to welcome you to our community. So before anything else, I'd like to pray, and then we'll take a dive in. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to be at church uh, today. Thank you we get to learn from your word. I pray that we would um, come to a better understanding of what it is you say. And Lord, I pray that that would ultimately, the whole purpose of all this, God, is so that we would love you better and be able to, um, both in our hearts and in our actions, God. So help us to walk with you well. In your name we pray, amen. So this week is the last uh, week of our sermon series on the book of James. And that being the case, I thought something that would be helpful is to give a little SparkNotes summary of the sermons we've had recently for a couple reasons. Number one, I know a lot of college students haven't been here, and so you missed out on all of them but this one, so that'd be a bummer just to get the punchline, you know? And then number two, I'm going to use a lot of the highlights that those sermons used anyway, because it's all part of the same book of the Bible, so I need to use that material anyhow. So for those reasons, I'm going to give you a little summary. So here we go. Tommy gave a Zoom-based discussion. We were shut down from COVID for that week, um, and it was on the first couple verses of James. They'll be on the screen to my right and my left. Um, it reads, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we, what we talked about that week was the reason that we remain steadfast is because Jesus died, and he died to forgive us of all the sins that we have committed. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he did that, and now he sits on God's throne. Jesus does, because Jesus is God. He's glorified, and he has a glorified body, and we're going to follow suit, because our sins have been removed from ourselves. And all of our struggles that day when we get glorified with Jesus are also going to be removed when that day comes. And at that point, we'll be, quote, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's our motivator for perseverance, and that's our motivator for being steadfast. And then Steve preached about the importance of listening to the word, but then also doing the word, not just hearing it, but doing it as well. He pointed out that this is really hard, and often it, it's so hard that we feel like we can't do it, actually. There's a lot of things, let's face it, in the Bible that are really difficult to do. But Steve also pointed out that the reason that we try to obey is because we trust God, that he has our best interest in mind. And why do we trust God? Well, he explained that because Jesus, who is God, loves us so much that he decided to take on himself the punishment for everyone who would ever believe so that we who do believe would be able to love God by enjoying him forever. And so, yeah, it is hard to obey the words of the Bible, but we do it because we trust God and we trust God because of the love that he showed us by dying on the cross. 
And then Garrett preached a helpful sermon about what James says about the relationship between faith and works. Now, this sermon was both comforting, but it was also a wake-up call because, for one thing, it was comforting because it reminded us about our salvation isn't earned by us. We don't accomplish it. And whether we do something good or bad, we don't merit our own salvation. We don't earn it. That's something Jesus does. We're not going to lose our salvation from doing anything wrong. We're not going to gain it from doing anything right. Our salvation is earned by Jesus who died on the cross to forgive our sin. And so all we do to get saved is believe that Jesus died for us. And another thing Garrett pointed out was that belief that we even have in Jesus in the first place is a gift given to us by Jesus. So even that we don't get credit for doing. The fact that we believe itself is a gift. So we don't even earn our salvation, nor do we even contribute to our salvation. Jesus did it all for us. The key text that Garrett used to prove this point will be on the screens to my left and right. It's James chapter 2, verse 18, and it reads, I'll show you my faith by my works. And so what role do works play in this salvation process? Maybe works is a Christian word to just define it. Works are just actions, things that we do. Those are works. So what do my actions, how do my actions contribute to my salvation? Well, actually they don't. They only prove that I have faith to begin with. I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's Jesus who gives me faith. That's a gift. I don't earn that. And then I do works out of a natural response to the faith that I have. So those works don't accomplish my salvation. They're just evidence that I have it. They only exist to show me that I have faith. And it's earnest faith that saves me. So I, but I also mentioned that Garrett's sermon was a wake-up call. And it was a wake-up call because he reminded us that if we find ourselves living in patterns of disobedience to God and not making any effort to change our disobedient ways, and in fact, maybe we're like on purpose hiding it with absolutely no intention of telling anybody about it, and we don't have any responsibility there, we don't feel any guilt about that, that, way that we be, be, mm, the way that we would be behaving in that case would not be consistent with how Jesus calls us to live, and it's not consistent with the way that the Bible says that Christians will naturally live. They will inevitably live that way. And if we're in that boat, then we should probably question if we have real saving faith at all, because the faith that we have isn't producing the godly works that the Bible says my faith will produce. And that's really hard to swallow, and that's the wake-up call he gave us. But then at the same time, while we consider that, we still need to remember James chapter 3, verse 2. It's all in the same book here, and it reads, we all stumble in many ways. So we can't expect perfection, okay? And God doesn't expect perfection. That's why he died to forgive us our sins in the first place. That kind of assumes we're not perfect, doesn't it? Jesus died to forgive our problems that we have. So we all stumble in many ways. God knows that. But if our lives don't seem to be affected by Jesus at all, then we should probably ask ourselves if we know him at all and if we're actually Christians. And then last week, Jake preached about the importance of taming our tongue. And maybe that's another kind of Christian phrase, I'm not sure, but to just maybe explain what that means. Taming the tongue just means controlling the things that we say, guiding my tongue so that I'm using my words to edify people to speak in a godly way. Jake brought up Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, and that reads, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so that means the reason James is so concerned about our speech in James 3 is because it's so directly connected to the spiritual condition of my heart. And so if our hearts are godly, our speech will inevitably be godly. And so how we speak is a direct indicator of how we're doing with God. 
Jake also encouraged us, though, that godly speech isn't something that we're able to do alone and muster up by the strength of our own will. Rather, we need God's grace to make our hearts godly, which will in turn make our speech godly. And so we depend on Jesus to change our hearts. And that's the series so far. You're in the anchor leg, I suppose, if you want to say it that way. All of those sermons, I don't know if any of those stuck out to you, you want to dig more into that. Those are all online wherever you get your podcasts or stuff. They're listed with the person who preached it, the preacher, and then the Bible text that it was about. So if you have questions about those texts, feel free to use those. That's why we post them online. But for now, we come to our sermon text in James chapter 5, verse 7, which reads, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So the first word I want to look at is therefore. Why is it saying therefore? Okay, so what that means is in light of what I just said earlier, therefore now go do this and be patient. We're going to talk about go do this and be patient in a moment, but I just want to summarize for a moment um, what that first paragraph of James 5 is talking about because he's using it to continue his thought. I'm not going to read it here. I'm just going to summarize it in some bullet points. James 5, 1 through 3 my summary to you is, hey, to the rich, your riches don't last. That's what he says. Your riches aren't going to last, rich people. And then second point, James 5, 4 through 5, you misuse your riches and defraud poor people. So number one, hey, rich people, number one, your riches don't last. And number two, you're misusing them in the first place and you're frauding people who are poor. And number three, James 5, 6, you've also killed Jesus. So those are the three kind of summary points. Your riches don't last, you misuse your riches, you oppress people, and you've killed Jesus. Now, this kind of brings up a point about James just in general and how he communicates about rich people. There are moments in the book of James where, frankly, it seems like James is saying that rich people are not Christians. It may seem that way, but I want to point out that the Bible does straight up say you can be a Christian and have a lot of money. That's possible. The question is, what are you going to use your money for? If I could just prove this point real quick, Romans chapter 16, verse 23, Paul is mentioning a bunch of Christians that he knows, and he lists Erastus, the city treasurer, who's a Christian. Now, a man of that nobility surely had material wealth, right? He was the city treasurer, but he was also a Christian. So you can possibly be a Christian and have money. That's totally possible. But in the early church especially, and this is what I think why James writes the way that he does. The people who became Christians were almost always poor. That's something I learned in my seminary church, excuse me, that's something I learned in my seminary class, church history. In particular, especially in the early church, it was almost always poor people that became Christians. One of the reasons that that is, is because there was a lot to lose in that society to becoming a Christian. For one thing, persecution was really rampant especially under Emperor Nero, who literally burned Christians simply for being Christians, there was a lot to lose there. Second, if you were in power, if you were wealthy with nobility, right, especially in Rome, your wealth was connected to the worship of Roman gods. And so in particular, wealthy people disliked Christianity because it interfered with their sales of Roman idols. It decreased money coming into the Roman government because Christian refused to offer sacrifices to them and offer donations to the Roman gods. So this persecution and this financial dynamic are why James says in chapter 2, verse 6, we could just kind of bring the setting into our eyes right now, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
And so the rich did oppress them. The, the rich people were generally people who weren't Christians, who didn't like Christians and didn't want anybody to be Christian. They would also bring them into the courts and drag them there because it was illegal to refuse to offer sacrifices to the Roman uh, idols. So when James addresses the rich in chapter five, he is mostly addressing non-Christians, especially to his audience. And often, furthermore, when James introduces a new idea, he often addresses them brothers or brothers and sisters, this idea of like familial language, family of Christ. He often introduces uh, Christians that way, addresses Christians that way, excuse me. But not in chapter five, verse one. He just says, to the rich. Now, again, there may have been an occasional wealthy Christian in James's audience, like Erastus, the city treasurer. But in general, Christians were poor and were oppressed by rich non-Christians. That was the suffering that they were enduring, was oppression. They were also being dispersed that's why James 1.1 opens with to the 12 tribes scattered among the dispersion. That's Jewish Christians he's writing to, and they're being dispersed because of persecution. So, when verse 7 is written to Christians specifically, we know that because it says, be patient, therefore, brothers. That's the familial language, brothers in Christ, family in Christ. So, right from the get-go, for one thing, we see that Christians are not called to get revenge on their oppressors or get revenge on their wrongdoers. I mean, they're being oppressed by the rich, right? It doesn't say, hey, uh, be patient, therefore, brothers, while you revolt. Or Not to say that there's no place for protest. That's not what I'm saying. But it doesn't say, go get revenge on them. What it says is to be patient. They're called to be patient when? Until the coming of the Lord. Now, just to bring it to us in this room, I have to imagine that most people here have been hurt by someone before. I think that's fairly basic. Now, whether that's official like oppression that you've suffered, um, people in authority have oppressed you, oppress you right now, or you've been a victim of bullying before, or there's any kind of hurt that you've got from someone just in general, God is saying here, don't seek revenge. Wait for me to come. I will make things right. Or maybe... Your suffering isn't related to a particular hurt from a particular person. Your life is just really hard right now. I know a lot of people who are under a lot of suffering right now. And either way, whatever your suffering might look like here on earth, I hope that this is encouraging. When you get to heaven and you see Jesus and you see everyone with you who's ever believed in the history of the world, and you watch Revelation 21.4 happen right in front of you, and that reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When you see that happening, and when you get to, as Revelation 21.16 says, the golden city, which is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high, it's gold. It's filled with all these believers of the history of the world, and there's not even any Revelation 22.5. There's no need for like turning on lights. There's no need for even a sun because God himself just illuminates the whole thing. And the whole purpose for being there is for God to give you joy and for you to bring him glory forever. I really don't think we're going to be like, oh God, but that was pretty hard. I don't know if I'm okay. You know, I really think we're just going to actually have our tears wiped away. And death isn't going to be no more. There's not going to be mourning. There won't be crying or pain. Those former sufferings will have passed away. And so that, that's what will be left is gladness in the glory of God. And so, my friend, I want to encourage us. Be patient until God comes. It will be worth it. We have that to look forward to. That will be relief from our suffering. In particular, the example that verse 7 gives us is this. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it 
until it receives the early and the late rains. So farmers have to be patient as they wait for their crops, right? The farmer waits for the fruit. He depends on the rain or she depends on the rain. In particular, in Palestine, there's a rain season between October and January and then another one in the spring. This is, this is what James is referring to, early and late rains. And both are necessary for the crops to grow. Now, this is pretty removed from us. Personally, I just go to a grocery store. I think most of us do too. But let's imagine for a moment that all of us have like our own families and we're farmers. We are dependent on our crops. And those crops are dependent on the early and the late rains. That's going to require a lot of patience for us, won't it? We don't have a backup plan. We're just waiting for the rain to come. I mean, we'll ha we have family, children. Our children are hungry. And you just need to patiently wait. That's hard. I think that's authentic suffering. And it's not a passive patience either that we're called to here. Because while farmers wait for crops to ripen, the whole time they pull weeds, they fight off pests that are trying to eat their crops. This is active. It's not just waiting, sitting back and relaxing. This is a, an active patience that we need to exercise. And so while a farmer waits patiently, they still, at the same time, work hard. And in the same way, while we suffer, we work hard to try to honor God while we wait on him. And this is what Steve was talking about. Obedience to God, honestly, is really hard, especially when we're suffering. But Jesus invites us to wait for him actively while we suffer. And then when he comes, we will literally never suffer again. So I don't want to minimize our struggles. Your struggles are real. The farmer waiting in hunger, wondering if his family is going to go hungry this year because his crops haven't come up yet, that's a real problem. That's, that's real suffering. And so I'm not saying your problems aren't hard. And in fact, you may be enduring the hardest suffering that you've ever endured in your whole life. I'm not sure, but you might be. But I also want to say when Jesus comes back, all of those sufferings and all of those problems will be immediately resolved. Verse 8 continues. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That you also just means, in the same way, hey, look to the farmer. In the same way, how the farmer's patient, be patient. Let's do the same thing with our sufferings that the farmer does. And so how do we remain patient exactly? What does that look like? That's a nice thought, but I don't want this to just be cheesy words, right? Well, let's take a look at what exactly is being said here. Establish your hearts. What does that mean? It means to set your heart, make firm your heart. First of all, why do we do that? We're also going to talk about how do we do that. So first of all, why? Why would I set my heart? Why do I do that? It's because Jesus is coming back to the earth. That's why I set my heart. And then the what is, I'm going to see him forever. I'm setting my heart on him in particular. That's, and the way, how do I establish my heart on Christ? By setting my mind on him. By setting my heart on him. That's how I do it. So the reason I do it is because Jesus is coming back. And the way that I do it is I set my mind on him coming back. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4 will be, on my, will be on the screen on either side here. And it goes into this. Colossians 3 reads, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this does not mean that you ignore your suffering. Okay, things of the earth are still important. The, the farmer has to wait for his crops. That's something of the earth, right? But it does mean that in your suffering, you don't focus on the suffering in and of itself. You focus on what? Verse four. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear, appear with him in glory. You focus on Christ, who is your life. That's what you focus on while you suffer, not just the suffering you're enduring. You're enduring the suffering, but in the meanwhile, you are focused on Jesus. And that's why when we're suffering, we're able to say, look, this hurts really bad, but this is the situation God has me in, and even if it kills me, my whole life belongs to him anyway. Looking at Colossians 3.3, 3, our lives belong to Jesus because he gave his life for us. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That, that, what that means is he loves us so much that he died for us and now we're so thankful to him that we're compelled to love him back just as fully as he loved us. How fully did he love us? To the point of giving his whole life to us. And so now we love him back, offering our whole lives back to him. And so now, we wait patiently and with anticipation of the Lord's return because we're focused on him. And Colossians 3, 4, when he appears, I will be with him in glory. And so our sermon text says that the farmer waits for precious fruit. And in the same way, we wait for precious Jesus to come to us. He's going to end our suffering permanently. That's good news. That's something worth waiting for. Verse 9 goes on into something pretty specific. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When we're not suffering, life generally feels comparably awesome, at least compared to when we're not suffering, compared to when we are, right? But, but then, and, and we, we feel like we're like relatively nice people, comparably speaking. But when we're having a bad day, things are going rough, we're upset, we're hurt, we're angry, we're tired, we tend to be a little bit more mean, don't we? And I think that's why, in particular, James says here not to grumble against each other. Because immediately after acknowledging suffering, James encourages us not to grumble against each other because we're so prone to grumble against each other when we're suffering, aren't we? I mean, we are impatient people. We want our suffering to end. And when we get cranky, we get cranky at people and then we grumble against them, don't we? An example of this from my own life is a time where my brother, and Han, my brother Hans and I grumbled against each other. I asked his permission if I could use this example so I'm not smack talking to anybody. And I do want to preface, I have a very high view of Hans, okay? Honestly, it's pretty seldom we have episodes like this, okay? We, we've had a good brotherhood. So I love Hans. He's not the bad guy. We both are. Here's the story. Uh, we lived in kind of your prototypical, like, dude college house off campus for two years. And throughout our tenure at this house, all the boys, myself included, we would accumulate things in this house. Generally, those were pretty large things like furniture, free couches, free extra bed frames, extra mattresses. In particular, a broken piano, we brought that in. We just thought it'd be nice. Anyway, as you can imagine, with seven college boys living in the house, in addition to these huge clunky furniture pieces... We would have dirty dishes, not just in the kitchen sink, but kind of spread throughout the house. We would have dirty laundry, not just in our bedrooms, but spread throughout the house. That was kind of the vibe of the house. It was a fun time, not all the time, but a lot of the time. But then the rough time happened when it came time to move out of this house and clean it. This was really stressful for all of us because, number one, it's stressful when you have to clean a house that's that messy to, like, meet the standard of a landlord. That's already stressful. Number two, it's really hard to dispose of massive free broken furniture, especially a piano. So for these reasons, we're, like, really pretty stressed out. Also, we left ourselves really almost no time at all to do it. That was our bad. We procrastinated. So here we were. The conflict happened when Hans asked me to pick up my laundry from the living room. Very reasonable. My laundry doesn't belong in the living room. Totally. 
but I'm stressing out in this moment because I have a deadline to meet for grad school. So I tell him, no, I need to do that later. Can't do it right now. Sorry. And Hans is like, well, actually, we need to move out of the house. So you have to do it. So far, Hans is right. Okay, I'm in the wrong here. I'm being stubborn. But I hold my ground. I'm like, nope, not doing it. Got to do my work, right? So then Hans responds, well, if that's the case, I'm going to throw your laundry in the front yard because you really need to get this done. Okay, so now at this point, both of us are wrong, okay? We're grumbling against one another, aren't we? Yeah, we're doing it to each other's face. It's not like I'm like, Hans stinks, you know? But like we're both like to our face. It's not like this is edifying, you know? We're grumbling against each other. And honestly, it was a little rough. We had some guests over. They left. It was awkward. They left because we were arguing. It, it wasn't wonderful. And so what happened here, though? Every, everybody who knows Hans and I knows we get along really well. We love each other a lot. We really never fight. So what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. We were suffering. We needed to move out. We were stressed about it. And me in particular, I was stressed about my deadline. That's why I was so rude. Both of us were being impatient. Our sinful hearts got exposed by this suffering. And so here we were, grumbling against one another. Now, I admit, this isn't the most severe conflict, okay? And, and it wasn't very severe suffering either. We apologized afterwards. We hugged it out. We, we were okay, all right? So I don't think that this embodies every case of conflict that people could have with one another. And on, but on some level, I do think that it's relatable, isn't it? We all know that we're prone to grumbling against one another when we get stressed out, when we are suffering. Maybe it's not just stress, but it's just like, I'm anxious about something. Now, you could grumble against one another directly to someone's face like Hans and I did. You could do it behind someone's back and grumble against people to other people. Or you could just do it in your own heart like, oh man, like Alden stinks. He doesn't clean his... You know, like you could do that too. All three of those options are wrong. I'm not saying I'm above it. I'm telling you I did it, okay? But I do want to point out when we grumble against each other, let's look at what the text says. It says we grumble against one another. We're opposed to one another when we do that. This is not God's design for Christian community, is it? And look at the next word, against one another, brothers. These are our, this is sibling family language. These are our, this is our family of Christ. We're a family of God. So let's not act like enemies opposed to one another and against one another. Now, that said, if someone in the family of Christ has honestly hurt you, this doesn't mean it needs to remain unaddressed, okay? I'm not saying get over it, be patient, wait in the Lord, he's going to come, keep that thing bottled up and just hold on tight. No, I, that's not what I'm saying. If you've been hurt by someone, the best thing to do is approach them in love and forgiveness and understanding. Let them know honestly that you've been hurt by them and seek to reconcile with them rather than grumble against them in your heart or to others or perhaps to their face. But I also want to mention some hurts go deeper than others. Not all hurts have to do with laundry in a living room, okay? I think that's kind of like a little bit surface, you know? But some of us have incredibly deep personal wounds that just by nature of how deep they are will take a long time to process through and heal from and reconcile with. So I hope you don't hear me saying this is an easy task. And I know that it looks a lot different for a lot of different people in a lot of different cases. And there's nuance to every hurt and conflict. So I just want to recognize that and acknowledge that. But at the same time, I still want to offer you hope that if Jesus is able to reconcile my sinful heart to his and give me perfect, eternal friendship with him, that's a miracle. He can do, he's done that in your heart if you're a Christian as well. You know that's a miracle. Friendship with him is not possible apart from him dying for us, removing our sins, bringing us into eternal perfect fellowship with himself. That's literally a miracle. Jesus has done that, right? So if Jesus can do that in our hearts, man, Jesus can reconcile you with whomever you have a disagreement with, no matter how deep. 
Jesus can do that. And in the meanwhile, as you wait on that reconciliation, I know that can be a process oftentimes, you're still called not to grumble against your siblings in Christ. And like Steve was saying a few weeks back, it's really hard to do this. It's really hard to be obedient, especially when we suffer, especially when we're cranky and mad, and justifiably so sometimes, right? But again, the reason that we're obedient to Christ is because we trust God. So let's ask him for the grace to be obedient to him, and let's do it. So, We've talked about the first half of verse 9, which says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. But now let's dig into the second half. So that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The first thing I want to say about this text is what the text is not saying. The text is not saying, if you grumble against someone once, that's it, you're going to hell, sorry. That's not what the text is saying. For one thing, Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, okay? So that implies that we're sinful and we've messed up, okay? James 3, 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. James recognizes that per- perfection's not even the goal here, right? God doesn't expect perfection from us. But we should feel sorry when we've hurt Jesus, right? When we sin. But though we should feel sorry, we shouldn't feel anxious about it. Again, we can go back to James 2.26 where Garrett preached about how faith without works is dead. So perhaps we still do need to hear at the same time, even though it's not a one shot and done. If, if we have a continual, unchanging, with no desire to change pattern of grumbling against others, that may be because we're not a Christian at all. Again, I'm not saying, like, if, if you feel convicted about it, you're like, oh, I'm working on it. This, oh, I'm sorry, God. That's a different thing. It's hard, and hey, we all stumble in many ways. That's the point. We are being sanctified toward Christ more and more as our lives progress. But it's still possible that if you feel nothing about it and you're just, I don't even really care what Jesus says. I'm just going to do it anyway. That may be because you're not a Christian. So maybe you're hearing this and you thought you were a Christian, but now you're thinking you actually might not be. Maybe you're hearing this and you know you're not a Christian and you're like, I've never heard anything about Jesus dying for my sins. Maybe you're here, you're a Christian, you know you're a Christian. No matter where you're at, no matter where your faith is at, the text says Jesus is standing at the door. He's knocking. He's coming soon. Now, maybe Jesus will come back to earth before you die. Jesus is going to come to earth to bring all those who are his to himself. That's how he's going to inaugurate that golden city that I was just telling you about in Revelation. So he's coming soon. And if Jesus does come to earth before we die, that's going to feel soon, right? But maybe he won't. You know, it's been 2,000 years. It it could be longer. We don't know. He might not come back before you die, but if that's the case, you're going to (laughs) die. And so in that case, it'll still feel soon. So either way, Jesus is coming soon. Whether he comes back or we die, we're going to meet him soon. And so my friend, prepare yourself for his coming. I think we all know what it's like being alone in a room, doing something we know we're not supposed to be doing, that we wouldn't want anybody seeing, and somebody walks in on us. Or at least we we know that fear of like, oh man, I hope nobody, oh gosh, did someone come in? You know, that feeling. That is the experience of a non-Christian when Jesus comes back. And it will be an eternal guilt, an eternal panic that you feel if that's your situation. This will be on the screens to my left and right, James 4, verse 12. It reads this, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. So your options are one or the other. Either you get saved or you get destroyed. And if you want to get saved, simply believe in Christ, who is God for the forgiveness of your sins, and let that faith motivate you to do good works for his glory in your pleasure. 
And if you're not a Christian, if you want to get destroyed in eternal punishment and suffering of hell, just keep doing what you're doing. Jesus will walk in on you someday, though. And I'm warning you because I don't want that to happen to you. I've been saved from hell personally, and I want that for you as well. So my friend, run to Jesus in faith. He invites you to do that now. Trust in him today. That is available to you now, and it might not be later. So run to him. In verse 10, James offers us examples of people who have suffered patiently. Um, he talks about the prophets. That the verse will be on, my, on the screens here. Verses 10 and 11, they read, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Now keep in mind, James's hearers were Jewish Christians who were really familiar with the Old Testament. I'm not so sure that we're as familiar with the Old Testament as they were. So when he calls back, keep in mind the prophets, I'm not sure that we're as familiar with that as his hearers would have been. So what I'm about to do right now is just give a list of different prophets who suffered patiently for God and endured suffering. I'll give a short little summary of each one. I'll give you the book or the scripture passage. You can go back on your own time if you'd like. If you're taking notes, maybe you could go back for your quiet times for this. But here we go. These have meant a lot to me in my walk with God. Uh, examples of suffering and patience. Here we go, Jeremiah. As an aside, I actually read Jeremiah 1 this morning because I was feeling insecure about preaching a sermon and Jeremiah's like, hey God, I'm really young. I don't know if I can do it. God's like, dude, I'm God. I think I can take care of you. Like, I think I got this one. That's not really what this is about, but no charge. Anyway, Jeremiah, great book. What I meant to share with you though is Jeremiah is called by God to speak as a prophet to very disobedient people and he knows that. That's his calling to, to speak to them as a prophet of God. And in so doing, he actually gets imprisoned by the people of God because they don't really like what he's saying. But then they still refer to him like, hey, Jeremiah, as a prophet, I know you're in prison, but could you tell us what God says? Like, are you kidding me? You just imprisoned me, man. But he still does it. Like, how steadfast is that in the midst of suffering? There's one time in particular, Jeremiah, he tells them, hey, guys, God is calling you to stay here. Do not flee to Egypt. God has told me to tell you, stay here. And what do they do? They go to Egypt, but they don't just do that. They put him in prison, put him in a carriage, and take him to Egypt. I mean, how, man, that's a stinky situation. I mean, here he is like, I just told you not to go there, and now I'm going there because you put me there. Oh, man. I mean, and the whole time they're referring to, hey, Jeremiah, what does God say? Like, are you serious? But he's faithful to do it. That's steadfastness in the face of suffering. I think that's really cool. The book of Daniel, I'm reading through it now for my quiet times. Daniel gets, gets imprisoned in a Babylonian captivity along with a lot of other Jews. He gets recognized for his ability that God gave him to interpret dreams. Um, and so he climbs the ranks. King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes him, is really grateful for how Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams for him. Nebuchadnezzar's the king of Babylon. But then King Nebuchadnezzar starts demanding that Daniel and his comrades worship his idol gods. And they refuse. And I, this is my favorite part of Daniel. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, you know, the king says, worship my gods. And the... Um, these guys say, Daniel and his friends go, hey, look, king, we don't have to answer you in this matter. Number one, God can deliver us. Number two, God will deliver us. Number three, even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your idol. We love God. And the threat before that, the th I forgot to mention this, the threat that the king gave was, if you don't worship my gods, I'm going to throw you in a furnace. And that's the response. God can, he will, and even if he doesn't, we love God. And so what is he, he throws them in a furnace, but what happens? God miraculously lets them not be burned, 
Even the guards that are like guarding the room outside get fried because it's so hot. But they walk out, their clothes are fine, they're not even singed. They're like, hey, God protected us. I don't know what to tell you. you know? And then because of that, King Nebuchadnezzar is like getting a hint. He's like, wow, I think God's legit. And then he makes God the official religion of Babylon for a while. I mean, talk about cool, right? That's how they suffered and how it turned out for good for God's glory. Isn't that cool? I think that's inspiring. He can, he will, and even if he doesn't, that's awesome. Okay. The next, the, the next one's all, I can go a little quicker. Um, Isaiah chapter six, God commissions Isaiah, telling him basically, hey, you're gonna be my prophet to these people. No one's gonna listen to you, but I'm calling you to talk to them. And Isaiah's like, oh, okay, I'll go, send me, uh, but how, how long is this tenure gonna be? And God basically says, until no one's left in the city and the city is burned. Like, oh, that's a calling, isn't it? I mean, that's a suffering. You need to be steadfast to be that. And Isaiah's a pretty long book. But he, because he keeps on doing it. He remains steadfast in that difficult calling that involved suffering. Nehemiah, this is a really cool book, I think. Nehemiah sets out to rebuild the destroyed temple so that God's people can worship. That's a noble goal, right? But he faced such opposition, in particular, chapter four, verse 17 of Nehemiah, they literally have to hold with one hand weapons of war while they're building the temple wall with the other hand because there's so, much, there's so many people that are trying to wage war on them and oppose what they're doing that they have to fight back and be so ready that they hold one weapon in one hand and like a shovel or whatever in the other. Like that's a lot of like suffering, right? They, that's steadfastness to be doing a construction project with a sword in your hand because people are trying to kill you while you're doing it, but you're that committed to doing it. That's steadfastness. Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were, they were homies. They actually worked together. Ezra had a slightly different role though. He wasn't so much like a conditioner over, commissioner or overseer of the construction. He was, what he was called to do was learn and teach the word despite basically the entire nation disobeying. And there's a point where in chapter nine, verse three of Ezra, where Ezra is so heartbroken at the disobedience of the people that he's called to lead that he rips out his beard and he rips out the hair on his head because he's so heartbroken. This is a hard calling. That's suffering. He suffered for these people. Joseph, the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 50, basically his brothers leave him for dead in a ditch. Joseph gets picked up by some travelers, eventually ends up serving Pharaoh, king of Egypt, climbs the ranks because God blesses him, ultimately delivers the entire land from a seven-year famine, but it was a long and suffering road. And we see how God used his suffering and Joseph's steadfastness and faithfulness to bring about a whole lot of good. And that if uh, you've probably heard this verse before, um, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says that to his brothers who tried to kill him. What ended up happening, Joseph suffered a lot. There was a lot of evil that was done to him. But what ended up happening is his brothers ended up getting delivered. I mean, how cool is that? Because Joseph was willing to endure and suffer and remain steadfast, he set his heart on the Lord. That's what happened. That's the fruit of a suffering, patient, enduring, steadfast heart. Two more here. I'm almost done. Esther. Basically what happens is someone in authority decides in this story to exterminate all the Jews in the land. Really messed up. Esther bravely goes into the king and there was a rule back then where if you went into the king unannounced, you would be killed unless he gives you like special permission, which was fairly rare. And so chapter four, verse 16, Esther just bravely says, you know what? I'm gonna do this for God's people. I wanna protect God's people, so I'm going in. If I perish, I perish, but I'm going in. And she did it. The king did give her her blessing and all the Jews were delivered. That's suffering, right? That's a lot of anxiety that she would have had, I have to imagine. I actually know it because it says it in the book, so you can read it for yourself if you'd like. 
It's very inspiring. Okay, last one, Hosea. I think this is so cool. God commands Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. Why? So that God can show as an example what it's like to be married to an adulterous bride, Israel, who's always unfaithful to God. So Hosea is kind of the metaphor for God, and his adulterous wife is a metaphor for Israel, God's people, who are also adulterous to God. And in fact, she's so faithless to him, seemingly she leaves him because in chapter three, he has to go to a slave auction where she's sold for sale after running away, and he buys her back as his wife. Not even like buying her as a slave, all right, serve me now because like, you ran away. It's not like that. He buys her back so that he can love her as his wife. I mean, that's steadfastness. I mean, that would st- I-, I would be bummed at that point, to say the very least, if my wife left me, you know? Like, oh man, that's heartbreaking. But this guy, he goes and he buys her back so that he can love her and be steadfast. That's suffering. So, I hope that's helpful so that we can look back and see these different prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and were steadfast. So, to finish up verse 11 here, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Those prophets did remain steadfast, didn't they? They finished the race. We look at their lives now and their lives are complete. And this particular blessing, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. That particular blessing is delayed for those who are still alive isn't it? They remain steadfast. Their life is over. It's done for them. They've already done it. They've accomplished it. So we're waiting for that. So we wait until we've met Christ to get our full blessing. And Christ is our full blessing. Being with him in that golden city I was just talking about, that is a full blessing. And so those who have gone into God's presence are truly blessed. But they suffered on their way to get there, didn't they? All those different prophets that I mentioned suffered a whole lot. So in the here and now, joy is accessible to us, but we have yet more joy to enjoy in its fullest when we are with Christ himself at the end of our lives. James 1.4, I've read this already, but it's worth repeating here. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that is fully blessed. And that's what happens when our lives are over and we've met the Lord and that is our reward. So in verse 10, James encouraged us, James encouraged us to look to the prophets as examples, people who were patient and steadfast and endured suffering. <clears throat> now, in verse 11, toward the end of verse 11, he uses a specific prophet as an example that I didn't mention, and that's Job. So let's read verse 11 right now. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So maybe you've read the Old Testament book of Job. Maybe you haven't. I do recommend it. Personally, it's meant a lot to me in my struggle. In particular, I've struggled with doubting God and feeling like that's like suffering. Like, oh God, are you really there? And I felt a lot of comfort and a lot of growth, honestly, from that struggle because of the book of Job, just seeing how like confused he is. His friends give him, honestly, not that great advice, and he's also like not that faithful, but he is somewhat faithful still and steadfast still. And then God just like shows up at the end, speaks, and Job's like, oh man, you're God, you know? And it's just, I just think that's really inspiring. But that's not the brief summary I'm going to give. I am going to give a more thorough summary of Job. But just to say, Job is a book that we can look back to when we suffer, in particular, because he suffered, I think, probably more than any other uh, person in the Bible, apart from Jesus, maybe. Definitely Jesus suffered more than him. Maybe Job is second, maybe he's third, I don't know. But he suffered a lot, that's my point. Anyway, 
Job chapter one, let me, let me give you a, a little overview of Job so that we can really know what James is talking about here. Job chapter one opens with Job, he's a wealthy man. He has a large family, he's got 10 children, lots of property, lots of animals. Job 1.3 actually says that Job was the greatest of all the people in the East, he was a big deal. He was wealthy. He was also a really godly man. It describes how often he would pray for his family and make sacrifices just in case they had sinned without knowing it. But chapter one doesn't get too far without all in the same day, Job's servants all get killed, his livestock gets stolen, the livestock that are left all get killed, and his entire family, apart from his wife, and we'll get to his wife, she's not that helpful actually, all 10 of his children die because of the building they were in collapsed. That's a really bad day. His response to this news, Job 1, 20, 22, it'll be up here on the screens. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's a very godly attitude in the face of suffering, isn't it? Well, let's see what happens next. In chapter two, Job is struck with, quote, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he's so miserable that he sits in ashes and scrapes himself with a broken piece of pottery. Ugh, this is horrible, right? Job two, nine and 10, it'll be up here. Then his wife said to him, this is after all that's happened. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This was a man who was steadfast, isn't it? This, this guy's heart was established amidst suffering. Chapter two of Job ends with Job's three friends coming to comfort him, but they don't even recognize him. He looks so bad. That's what it says. And he's so sad that for the first seven days and seven nights, they just sit there sobbing with him. Nobody spoke for seven days and seven nights. Like, man, that's how distraught he was. And then after those seven days are over, the first thing Job says, he says, let the day perish on which I was born. Man, this guy is having a rough time. The next 35 chapters go something along these lines. Chapters three through 32. Job complains about his present condition. One of his friends accuses him of wrongdoing. Job is really upset about his life situation, but he's also like, hey, I don't actually think that I'm suffering because I did something wrong. That's not really how God works. It's not karma, man. Like, what's going on? I think you're wrong about that. But he continues to complain. Another friend speaks up and accuses Job of doing wrongdoing again. And then Job's like, oh, no, all right, you too. Well, no, really, I don't think this. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's three cycles of that through all three of the friends, all three of the friends again, all three of the friends again. And it gets more and more aggressive as the time goes on. And it's less and less pleasant to read. It's really pretty ugly. And then in chapter 33, a new guy pipes up. Maybe he can clarify the mess. Elihu, that's his name. And he comes in swinging, Elihu. He says, all right, everybody, I've been listening. None of you has been able to refute Job, but I can. That's what he says. Okay, well, evidently not entirely because throughout his speech toward Job, Elihu actually misquotes Job and accuses him of saying things that Job didn't even actually say. And Elihu, he goes on for five chapters, chapters 33 to 37. This is how it goes. It's just Elihu going off on Job. That's it. I think we've had, maybe not quite this dramatic, but experiences like this, right? Where we having it, we're having an argument or maybe we're just like suffering, having a really hard time, but people aren't really understanding each other and they're talking over each other. No one's actually listening, but everyone's definitely telling everybody how they feel and what they think, that kind of thing. I think that's really what's going on here, especially with Elihu. 
And now that's happening here in Job the whole time. The poor guy, he's lost everything he's ever owned, including his family, except for his wife, who just got done telling him, curse God and die. Not exactly helpful, right? This is suffering. And in all that emotional turmoil, his friends are just talking at him. Like, man. Now, one of the difficulties as a reader trying to read Job is that there's pieces of truth in things that everybody says in Job, in his three friends, and then in Elihu who pipes up. All of them, they say some things that are not true, but they also say things that are true, so it's hard to read and be like, oh, okay, I'm trying to decipher what, 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 like, what do I need to filter out here? You know? So that's a struggle that just exists in trying to read Job anyway because they're all so like, confused in their mess. Chapter 13, verse 3 in particular, this is Job speaking, I think gets at what I'm saying. So this is Job. This is something he should not have said. He said, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Ooh, okay. I don't think we want to pick fights with God, Job, you know? Like, this isn't like, hey God, I'm curious. Could you explain this to me? I'll accept what you give me, but I'm just, I just want to talk this out. It's not like, it's not like a curious. It's like, Job's trying to fight God. Like, hey man, chill, right? Chapter 13, verse 15, a few verses later. This is half good, half bad in the same breath here. The good part is, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Okay, so he's hoping in God despite the suffering that God has, is putting him through. Yeah, okay, that's good. But the very next word, very next sentence, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Ooh, okay. Kind of missed it there. So, okay, I'm trusting God. I hope in God. I know that God's given me suffering, but I hope in him. And also, I kind of want to fight him. You know, like, oof, okay. It's like a little of both, you see? Like, there's truth there. Like, yes, we should hope in God in our suffering, but no, we shouldn't fight him, you know? So in the same sentence, he challenges God to a fight in the very sentence that he honors him. So you see how there's truth and even honor in some of what Job says, but in the same breath, he's also sinning. That's pretty much how chapters 3 through 37 go. But then in chapter 8, God shows up and answers Job. This is what he says, Job 38, 1. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God's showing up for the fight that Job challenged him to. And then the rest, those two chapters, um, 38 and 39, God just rails Job question after question after question like that. And after those two chapters, Chapter 40, verses 4 through 5, the first thing that Job says is, I'm going to stop talking now. And then God goes on, he's like, okay, that's great. And he goes on for two more chapters of railing Job with question and question and question. And then Job answers again in 42, 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so look at what Job's suffering did for him. It brought him to a place of a better understanding of God and a more humbled understanding of who he was and where he was. He wasn't asking God any more questions. He was like, I'm just gonna be quiet, right? And I think that's a lot of our experience with suffering. If we do it in a way that honors God, we will be steadfast in our suffering. We will be refined. First Peter talks about our faith is like gold refined by fire. First Peter is all about suffering. That fire is suffering. We are refined by the suffering that we endure if we do it with our eyes on the Lord. And so at the end of the book, what happens is God gives Job double the wealth that he had before. He even gave him 10 new children. So God restored him and then some. So what do we make of that? Well, first, we saw that Job endured suffering in an immediate moment. I mean, he lost everything, right? He also endured suffering in a continual way. This, like, 30-chapter-long argument with his friends. That wasn't pleasant. That was a continual suffering. 
they even compounded his suffering because they frustrated him. And so Job was somewhat faithful, right? But he also sinned a lot. In particular, he actually grumbled against his friends. Chapter 16, verse 2, Job literally calls his friends miserable comforters you are. That's what he says. It's not like, hey guys, like, oh man, I really want to receive what you're saying. So maybe we, if you could just change your time, I, I want, maybe we could talk this out. No, you guys stink. That's like what he was saying, right? That is grumbling against one another. So, I mean, that's one thing that James said not to do, right? The other thing, Job is not patient. He demanded a fight with God. That is not patience. These are the two things that James just said, don't do this, and Job did do it. So why is Job our example here? Isn't he a bad example? Didn't he do exactly opposite what James is saying? Yes, in a way. But I also think that Job is a perfect example exactly because he sinned in all the ways that James says not to, but he never ultimately lost his faith. I think that's what's going on here. I mean, again, James prefaced his text with, we all stumble in many ways. So again, perfection is not the goal. But look at this. Look, we see how Job struggled. We see how Job questioned. We saw even how Job was not submissive to God, but he did continue to hope in God. An example of that, Job chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. It reads this. After my skin has been thus destroyed, I mean, he was covered in uh, loathsome sores, right, from head to toe. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Like, you can see, like, he's struggling. My heart faints within me, yeah? But also, I'm gonna see God. I'm gonna. And this is chapter 19. By this point, he's gone through two cycles of like, man, my friends are not helping me out right now, right? But he doesn't lose faith in God. And another thing to note, the three friends that Job grumbled against in the last chapter, chapter 42, God has Job pray for them. And so, if you find yourself grumbling against brother or sister, I wanna challenge you, rather than grumble against them, to, to pray for them. I have to imagine that after God was done speaking and chapter 42 comes around, Job and his three friends are probably like, oh man, like, right, who's gonna apologize first? You know, like, like we just had like a, a 30 chapter fight. You know, this is tough. But hey, maybe you're not quite ready to reconcile with those with whom you're tempted to grumble. But as a first step, I do wanna challenge you to do what Job did to his perpetrators. They hurt him, yes, and badly so but he did still pray. I bet you it was hard, but he did do it. So I hope that that's inspiring to you, that you can do that. That's accessible to you. And we can pray to God for the grace to pray for those who we're so tempted to grumble against. Now, the ending of Job, I think, is really hopeful for us because God multiplying Job's wealth and giving him a family of 10 children again and all that, that represents the blessing that heaven is when we meet the Lord at the end of all our suffering, at the end of all this toilsome life, and it, it, there are moments where it's really toilsome. We're gonna meet God and we're gonna be relieved of our suffering and we will have an abundant life with God. Now, that's in heaven. That's not necessarily on earth that we'll have uh, material prosperity, right? Some people think that if, if I'm a Christian, I'm gonna, God's gonna make me rich. That's false. Let me prove that to you just by looking at the book of Job. First, why was Job rich at the beginning of the book? Why, why did he have all that prosperity? Well, because God gave him riches. But then why did Job lose his riches shortly thereafter? Because God took them away. Job himself, 
We read this already, but it's worth repeating here, Job chapter one, verse 21. It says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So yeah, God might give you wealth, but he might also take it, and he can do that as he wills. It has nothing to do with whether or not you have faith. If you want some more examples of this, there are times where Jesus sends his disciples on missionary journeys without any supplies, knocking from door to door, asking, hey, can I crash here? And also, you wanna feed me? That's Matthew chapter 10, verses five through 15. They're begging, right? They're not, they don't have money. The Apostle Paul, he wrote half the New Testament books. He was often, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, that says that he's often left homeless and hungry. Paul's not prospering in a material sense, is he? So the case cannot be made that following Jesus will bring about material prosperity. After all, Job suffered a lot, didn't he? But he was pretty faithful. But what what will following Jesus bring about if not material prosperity? What, what are we guaranteed? Let's read this again. Uh, James 5, verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At the end of your earthly life, you will see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you will only see that if you remain faithful to Christ. If we remain faithful to Christ, that's when we see how merciful and compassionate God really is. And so, my friends, now you have seen Job, whether you'd read it or not. You've got the spark notes anyway. You've seen Job. You saw that he was a sinful mess in his suffering. But you also saw that in Job, amidst that suffering, he did establish his heart for Christ's return, even though he was a sinful man. And at the end of his life, he saw fully the compassion and mercy of God, didn't he? And so, my friends, let's establish our hearts on Christ. Let's set our minds on Christ and his return while we suffer. And let's take strides to grow in patience while we wait. And let's take strides to do that actively, even though that's hard. And let's take strides not to grumble against one another, but rather to pray for one another, especially in our difficult relationships. At the end of this life, we will even more fully understand God's compassion for us and our mercy for us, that's gonna be a reward to receive all that compassion and mercy in that golden palace with all of the people who've ever believed. No more suffering there, right? That's gonna be so worth it. So let's wait for that patiently and let's work while we do so. And let's use the prophets and Job as examples for how to do that. The last verse of our sermon text is verse 12 and it reads this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So that, that phrase, above all, uh, maybe that sounds stark at first glance, but uh, let's keep in mind that throughout the letter of James, James repeatedly stresses that a person's speech is their most revealing indicator of their spiritual condition. So my speech is the most direct connection to my heart that people have access to. So above all, this is really important. This is a big indicator, God. above all, this is important, right? So let's see what it says. Well, oh, if I could just, sorry, one more thing to say. An example that James gives us about why it's so central, that one text that we haven't talked about yet, is so central to talk about our speech is this. James 1.26 reads, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. So James is saying, look, if you haven't bridled your tongue, there is nothing you're doing right. Like this is above all. This is urgent. This is especially important to work 
on your speech because it so exposes where your heart is at. Again, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I know we've already talked about that verse. And so, it's above all. So, practically though, okay, why should we not take oaths? Why do we have to leave it simply at yes or no? Why is this such a big deal in particular? After all, oaths were pretty common in the Old Testament. Not only were they common, but actually in one case, in Exodus 22, 10, and 11, God actually commands people to take oaths between each other. So what's the deal? God himself often makes oaths, both in the Old and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament's filled with commands against false oath-taking, sure, but why no more oaths at all? These are some questions I had, and I hope to explain to you guys here. So this is a situation, I think, where the New Testament, first of all, there's a couple of points to be made about this. One of them is, the New Testament often will take the standard that the Old Testament makes and elevate it to another level. One of those is in Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28. It'll be up here. It's about, Jesus is talking about adultery. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So that's a, a quote from the Old Testament. That's the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, look, you know not to do the action, sure. I'm telling you, don't even have that as a motive of your heart. Don't even think about that. Otherwise, you're just as guilty of committing adultery as the person who acts on it. So that's a situation where Jesus elevates the standard of the Old Testament to a higher level. He does something similar a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, 33 and 37. This is a text that's pretty similar to James and I think it helps flesh out some of the reasons for this. So I'll read that now. It'll be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's an Old Testament quote. The rule was, look, you can make oaths, but make sure you hold them if you're gonna um, hold them. So you've heard that it was said, but then picking up in verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So another reason that we don't take oaths anymore and I think that's what this text in Matthew is getting at, what Jesus is saying. The things that we swear upon aren't even in our control, are they? Look at, look at verse 34 of Matthew 5. I could swear by heaven. Oh, no, well, that's God's throne. Can't do that. That belongs to God, not me. Okay, verse 35. I could swear by earth. Oh, no, that's God's footstool. Okay, it's not mine either. I could swear by Jerusalem. Oh, well, that's actually God's city. Can't do that either. Okay. Well, I could swear by my own head. Oh, nope. God's in control of that too. I don't make my hair white or black. Okay, so even my head is God's head. Oof, okay. So we don't have any rights to anything in the world. How could we swear by them? So Jesus says, don't bother with those at all. Just live in the truth always. I think another point that we could make about why Jesus says not to make any oaths at all is because taking oaths in the first place implies that some of my commitments are not as strong as others, doesn't it? But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's John 14, 6. And so if I'm going to walk in truth, and if I'm going to walk with Jesus, if I'm going to let everything I say be totally true, that's what that means, is to walk in truth and to let the things that I say be reliable and trustworthy. Just a couple of verses ago, here's another reason. Our sermon text said, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is always at the door listening to you. He hears me. He hears what the things I say. He hears what we say. He's witnessing to us. 
And so I think this is what Paul does. I think this is exactly what Paul is saying when he says things like, God is my witness, or before God, I tell you. Some people will point to verses like that and say, oh, well, look, he's saying God is my witness. That's an oath. I want to give a little bit of pushback there. Maybe, but I'm not convinced of that. I don't think that that's what that's saying. I think Paul is literally saying, hey, Jesus is standing at the door. He's listening to what I'm saying. He's witnessing to me. I don't need to take an oath. I'm just telling you. He hears me, so that's my word. Yes, here I am, right? A couple of texts if you want to look at those. That's Romans 1, 9, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, Galatians 1, 20, Philippians 1, 8, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. In all five of those verses, God, uh, sorry, not God, Paul either says, God is my witness or before God I tell you. So I think what Paul is saying there is, hey, my yes is yes. God hears me, so I don't need to say anything more. Now, this doesn't negate, we don't need to be, take this to such an extreme that we don't make any commitments anymore, right? We can still let our yes be yes. For example, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul agrees to go under a vow. And it looks like it was probably the Nazarite vow. That's a vow that people would take in the Old Testament. The way that, that would work would be at the beginning of it, you would shave your head bald. At the end of it, you would shave your head bald again. But the time in between, you, there were a few things that you did. You wouldn't cut your hair, you wouldn't drink alcohol, and you wouldn't uh, touch any dead things. John the Baptist and Samson were two lifelong Nazarite vow takers. Anyway, that said, so Paul made that commitment. Did he take an oath? Well, it's not like he said, hey, if you catch me getting a haircut on this journey, you can have all my parchments. You know, he didn't swear in his parchments. He was just like, God's my witness. Yeah, I'll cut my hair. Let's do it. Let's do this thing. Yes, I commit, you know? So I, I think that's a little different than taking an oath. Anyway, for us present day, we still make commitments. We're encouraged to do so. When people get married, they don't say, babe, I swear on the roof of our future house. I promise. Like, no, that's, that's not what they say. They say, till death do us part, will you love her? Yes. I will. Yes. My yes is yes. So if someone asks me to do something, I can just say, yeah, I'll do it. Or no, I won't. Children do this a lot. It's pretty cute. They'll be like, you promise, you know. Um, but I think honestly, I could say, I've already committed to you as much as I'm able. And I'm not able to give you any more of my word than I just did. You know, uh, personally, I really do think if I'm going to offer like a, oh, I promise I'll do that. I do think that I'm going beyond just simply saying yes. I think my goal, I want to let my commitments just be my commitments and walk in the truth and simply have reliable speech. Now, maybe I'm getting a little lost in the weeds here, uh, but I do think, at least in my mind, this verse brings up some practical nitty-gritty like, well, how then do I live kind of questions. Um, and so one more little practical thing I do want to mention. I don't think that this text is saying we can't take oaths in a court of law or like sign mortgages and legal documents and things like that. that that's extreme. There are Christians who say that. I suppose I don't want to make fun of them, but I really do think they're wrong. Um, so th this text is instructing us. Why do I think they're wrong? This text is instructing us how to speak to one another reliably, right? I'm not personally familiar with any Bible text that mentions oaths in courts or leaning, signing legal documents with oaths. Personally, I'll just tell you, I, I would feel totally fine swearing an oath in a court of law to be a witness or something or signing a legal document that's binding. I, I think that's totally fine because I think that this text is teaching me about how specifically I'm supposed to speak to people and reliably live in truth as I communicate. So there you have it. The ending of verse 12 reads this. So that you may not fall under condemnation. So is a similar argument to what we said with the judge standing at the, at the door. It's not like you mess up once and it's over. Yes, Jesus died to forgive your sins. Amen. 
And we need to check the pattern of our lives, don't we? Because let's say we never let our yeses be yes. We like are compulsive liars and we feel no conviction about it whatsoever, no desire to change. We're like, yeah, look, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to keep my word. Ah, no, I don't even care. And I don't even want to hear what you have to say. I'm just not going to listen to Jesus on that. If that's your heart, you will fall under condemnation because you're not a Christian if that's the case. So, Similar argument to what we've already said, but I thought it needed to be reiterated because James does, in fact, reiterate it. So, one last practical question. I think this is a helpful transition into communion about letting our yes be yes. Why is it that God can make oaths in the New Testament, but I can't? I mean, Hebrews 6, God straight up talks about how he makes oaths. Goes on to even explain how oaths work. I don't, I don't think that's God saying, this is how oaths work, therefore everybody should make oaths, right? He's just saying, when people make an oath, they swear on something higher than themselves because that thing holds them accountable. And it goes on to say, hey, I'm God. I can't swear to anything higher than myself. It's me. I'm God, right? So why is God allowed to do that and I can't? Well, I think at least part of our answer is we've lost our right to take oaths because we're all liars, all of us have told a lie before. In Hebrews 6, 18, that, this is the same paragraph I was just mentioning, it, it, it says it's impossible for God to lie. And so at this point in the unfolding of history, God is the only one with the right to make oaths because he doesn't lie. In fact, he can't, but we do. And so in particular, when we take communion, we do so knowing that God is reliable and trustworthy and is going to make good on his promise of coming back for us. He died, he rose from the dead. That's the first time he made good on his promise, right? And he's coming back. He told us that. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 26. This is what Jesus said. It, it talks about what Jesus said when he was giving communion with his disciples. Here it is. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord, and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, this is a promise that we know he's keeping because he can't lie. His yes really does mean yes. So you may be suffering, you may, but if you're a Christian, you can know that your suffering will end when Jesus comes back and he promises that he will. And if you're a Christian, you may be suffering right now, but you will not suffer hell if you believe in Christ because Jesus took hell for you so that you could enjoy friendship with him forever in that golden city that I was telling you about earlier. And so that's what it means when it says Jesus was broken for us. So if you're a Christian, we're going to take communion now. There's cups under your seat with bread and juice. You can take that on your own time. I do need to say, communion is only for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you should not take communion because actually you don't remember Jesus' death and you don't yet look forward to his coming. We still invite you to think and pray about what you're hearing. There's going to be people in the back. They're ready to pray for you, whether you're a Christian or not. That's an invite for everybody. And everybody during this space should be praying and thinking about what they're hearing. That's kind of the goal of this, right? To remember what Christ has done and to think about it and pray to him about it. But even if today you believe in Christ for the first time, welcome to Jesus' table. Come have communion and remember his death for your sake. Let's take communion now.